Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. Thanks for listening in. We've had a steady stream of episodes coming out, and I really hope that you guys enjoy it. Now, if you're a first-time listener to the show, the explanation for this is very, very easy. This is a podcast celebrating horror movies, celebrate celebrating anniversaries. Now, we don't go for any of the 25, you know, 45 years. We stick hard and fast with just the milestones, the big 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Because basically any point you look at film history, when it comes to horror movies, there's always a film that deserves to be championed or risen up to the top. Sometimes it's the thing. Sometimes it's, you know, a titan, absolute titan up there that, of course, is slipping my mind right now besides the thing, because the thing is probably close to a perfect film for me. But we're also looking at the smaller films. I mean, we did an episode just several weeks ago on Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. So everything deserves to have a chance somebody's going to be out there championing a film and this is a show where we get to talk about it this week is fun because the last couple episodes we've been doing we've been doing some slightly smaller films maybe there is one or two that you'd heard of but there were films that definitely needed people to go back and watch them movies that are a little bit weird i mean we have we had an episode on fade to black we had an episode on christmas evil we had some even smaller films like i said we did the second Blair Witch film and now we're getting back on top now we're going to that that mountaintop that horror icon Mount Everest with this week's film and of course that is Friday the 13th the original from 1980 now however you feel about Friday the 13th what you get on in the series the first film is a different beast and I don't really think that's a bad thing now I think one of those points is because okay it's going to go off on tangent on Friday the 13th, but we have somebody who definitely is going to get to the bottom of this because they chose this film. This is somebody that I'm very excited to have on the episode. They are, as many of the guests we have here, people who write about film everywhere. I will let them check off the list, but I'm going to introduce them as a baker first and foremost. Please welcome to Horrorversary, Greg Mucci. How's it going, Greg? I'm good. Yeah. How's, how's everything? I'm, I'm hanging in there. Now, like I said, you are somebody who has written at many different sites. So just let the fine listeners at home know a couple of the places that you've written for. Um, I mean, right now I write, uh, I mean, not as steadily as I'd like, but uh, Daily Grindhouse, uh, Talk Film Society, uh, Nightmare on Film Street, uh, Set the Tape, um, which is a nice sort of youthful UK site um, that I kind of like to champion. Um and Crooked Marquee, um, I've written a little bit for a local theater in Harvard called the Brattle Theater, um, which, you know, I hope they're doing well um, during this sort of time of crisis, um, just as, you know, any other theater out there. Um, but yeah, I hopefully have a sort of longish piece on Crimson Peak coming out for a more notable horror site, um, but I'm not going to say anything else because, I don't know, things can never pan out the way they do, so we'll see. We'll, we'll, if that piece does come out, we will link to it on, on Twitter so that everybody can, can find it. But I mean, that's, that's a fun film that I was looking back recently to, to see, I mean, it's not of course at one of the big tent poles yet, but it, it feels like it's a movie within the last year or two that lots of people have been revisiting. Yeah. I think, you know, sort of thanks in part to Arrow's really lush, uh, like hard book, uh, limited edition that came out, um, 
which is one of the most like gorgeous things that they've ever put out. But I mean, yeah, it's the, it's coming up on the five year anniversary, I think, come October. And I, I do like how it's getting more notoriety because it's, I think, one of the best films of the past decade. And I remember seeing it um, opening night and I expected it to be like, uh, you know, sold out. And it was maybe one fourth of the crowd at an IMAX screening. That's 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 weird, but I mean that happens sometimes when it comes to to films that you think everybody's going to to latch onto because it's got a visionary director, but there, there's something maybe because of the gothic tone of it that people weren't exactly sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people sell it on the marketing sort of being you know a full on ghost story, but I mean I don't know. I think at this point with Pan's Labyrinth having come out. You know, a Devil's Backbone. You know, you can't really call that just a straightforward ghost story. I don't think you could call any of his movies, you know, except for maybe Blade Two or Mimic. You know, straightforward. I think they're very complex and deep films. So, I don't know if I fully blame that, but you know, uh, it doesn't get the due deserve it does. Just like I think, uh, you know, Baba's Kill Baby Kill uh, doesn't really get the full credit. Um, I mean, it certainly does get credit, but I mean, you know, Bay of Blood. Black Sabbath, like those all get credit, I think more so than Kill Baby Kill. And I think that movie is like, you know, exquisite on the level of Crimson Peak. Now, Greg mentioned three things that perfectly segue into talking about the film today. He mentioned Baba, he mentioned Bay of Blood, and he mentioned advertising. (laughs) And those three things definitely go hand in hand when it comes to Friday the 13th. Now, if you're somebody who's listening in for the first time or you haven't listened in a while, this show has a basic very basic setup and that's every single guest who comes on gets asked five questions and in between those we might have off uh, and subset questions that come into play to kind of get to the heart of what it is that makes this movie so special and so of course for the first question we always ask do you remember the first time you saw friday the 13th um i mean i would love to say that was like in full uh uncensored something that you know, my dad introduced me to, but I think it was probably um, either on like AMC Fear Fest or USA Saturday Night. Um, I think that's what it was called um, in the 90s. And I think I caught it when my parents went to bed and I was up late because, I mean, that's sort of like where I fell in love to, you know, TV and to horror movies was just catching like Critters and Friday the 13th and uh, especially around October, like Halloween four, which I think has probably one of the best fall aesthetics of the entire series. But I think I caught it there and I definitely didn't sit down and watch it like in full until I was probably, uh, maybe 19, 20. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's, it was one of those movies that just had this sort of, uh, I think stigma is probably the wrong word, but it just had this sort of this cloud hanging over it because all I would know of it is shots of, you know, them pulling Ned's body up from the water. Um, you know, just stills of, uh, you know, Marcy with like the ax in her face. And it was just all these things that would pop out and just sort of draw me in. But like, I just feel like there was like dread hanging over it. And I think that was partly due to the, you know, me not wanting to get caught watching it, which I think just sort of amplified a lot of Friday the 13th sort of, uh, like veneer, I guess, like that, like just guise of, I don't know, terror. And I, I but I, I do legitimately think it is uh, a very well done film. And I don't know, and to, not to supersede the question, I think it doesn't get enough credit in that in that regard. 
No, I, th- I think that definitely makes sense. I mean, there were there are definitely lots of things that uh, were sticking out to me this time that I, you know, hadn't seen the movie in a bit. I mean, every year, you know, there's at least uh, my math will be wrong, but I believe there's at least two Friday the 13th every single year. And so everyone, you know, kind of hunkers down to watch a couple of, uh, of the films mm-hmm. and recently uh, because everyone, you know, was under the stay at home order or was starting to get into that and couldn't go to theaters, they decided to do the Monday the 13th uh, marathon on Shudder. And so I think that was one of the first times that lots of people went back to watch uh, all of them. And so it kind of feels mm-hmm. like because of the outlier that the first one is, that it's the one that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah, I actually just read uh, BJ Colangelo's, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing their uh, last name right, but uh, I read their piece on Shudder, um, in which they watch all one through eight, I think in like one sitting, but it's like what they kind of gleaned from it. And I don't know, it's, it, I, I love reading pieces like that or sort of like hearing people talk about what they get from either first time watches or marathons of it. Because yeah, I, I think every time I sit down with it and it doesn't matter if it's, you know, uh, my, my first time or like my 12th time, it's just like, I'm kind of always getting something from it. And you know, definitely with the subsequent sequels, I think there's sort of uh, they they don't hold up as well. Um, you know, like I revisited Jason Takes Manhattan just last year, and I think every time I watch it, it like bounces between like a two and a three star. And I'm just like I get fed up with it, but then I fall in love with it, and I'm like, it's just like I don't know, it's a juggling act, and that's kind of what I love about the series. It's like it's never, it's always a, like a surprise. Now. For the second one, it's this. It'll sound like a silly question for this when you're when you're talking about something like uh, I just did an episode on Ginger Snaps, and well, Ginger Snap definitely mm-hmm. has a big following. Not everybody's seen Ginger Snaps at this point. It feels like everyone should have seen at least Friday the Thirteenth, but you're never sure. So, um, for the uninitiated, in as few words as possible, describe the basic synopsis for Friday the Thirteenth. Huh. Well, that's, that's a good question. I, huh. Okay. I think it's like, it depends on like how, how you sort of spin it, I guess. Uh, you know, I don't mean With, to make without like spoilers. A, so <laughs> without, okay. Well, wow. At this point, I mean, if you haven't had it spoiled for you, then really kudos to you because I feel like it's everywhere. Uh, but I guess, I don't know. I, the way I kind of look at it is in the, like a bit of a, a tragic vein. I think it's sort of about the story of, uh, a mother's son's neglect at a camp and, you know, I guess sort of the comeuppance that comes from uh, a boy drowning or being sort of neglected. Um, and yeah, I don't know. And it's, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not a revenge film in the typical sense, but I do think it's sort of, um, it's more tragic. It's more foreboding and it's more ominous than I think people paint it, uh, I know I'm sort of, you know, <laughs> going, going off on a tangent, but it's no, it, you're, you're you're painting in opaque brush brush strokes here. I have I'm using a large brush right now, but um, oh, but, but I actually just want to go back to the uh, first question because uh, do you remember the first time you saw it? Uh, yeah. See, Friday the Thirteenth was was a in a weird period. It was great that you called out mentioning um, Fear Fest or whatever it was called that that AMC mm-hmm. had. Because uh, I was somebody who the channel that I gravitated to was Sci-Fi Channel, uh, and okay. that was because Sci-Fi Channel in the '90s 
Um, I don't know if it was just all the time or late at night. I always, I would always sneak and watch it late at night. Um, but they, they got, once it was past either the eight or nine o'clock hour when they were playing stuff, it was basically, uh, sex and, um, explicatives were what was taken out of the film mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they would still have a, a lot of gore. So I would watch the movies that they play then. And so of course, when you have Friday the 13th, they would show several of them. And so that's how I became acquainted with like the first four films was when they would do little mini marathons on that Friday night going into, into Saturday when it was Friday the 13th and they wouldn't cut out a lot. So that was like my first big exposure to, Oh man, check all this stuff out and getting to watch it, (laughs) you know, at home. And so that's, that's how I kind of fell into it. It, Cause I was able to occasionally get away with running some stuff uh, that was R, but I would have to like kind of finagle it. So if something would pop on, uh, to sci-fi channel late at night that I knew I shouldn't be watching, then I would definitely watch it. Oh yeah. Friday, I mean, Friday was pivotal. It's, you know, I, I feel like it was the day of conserving energy because you just go home and you would watch, um, and depending on your age, you'd watch TGIF. And once you made it through that, you know, you had sort of a, a brief lull before I think the horror movies, you know, started to creep in and, you know, your parents went off to bed and you hopefully were able to either like slip out or stay up and, yeah, I feel like Fridays were like that marathon of just making it through because, you know, I think come Monday, if your other friends loved horror movies, it's, you know, what did you see? What what, what glimpses did you manage to catch? I, I did even worse because we had, of course, in the living room was where he had, you know, the Nintendo systems and stuff like that. And I had a younger mm-hmm. brother, so he would have to go uh, to bed. And so it would be always, you know, he'll, he'll go to sleep early and I can still play games, you know, if, you know, homework, whatever is done. And so I'd be under the guise of, oh, yeah, I'm going to play a little bit more of this game. And then mm-hmm. switch over to Sci-Fi Channel and and make sure that it was turned down. I mean, that's why everyone it it always makes me laugh when people are like, "Oh, I can't do subtitles." And I was like, even when I was young, I would have the subtitles on because I didn't want to get in trouble for what I was watching. Oh yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know. I, not to circle back around to tragedy, and also not to play that word up, but I mean, watching those movies as a kid, especially with you know, like sneaking it it's you didn't really get to appreciate harry manfredini's score because you're always watching it on such a a low decibel but i think now as an adult who doesn't necessarily have you know proximate neighbors like when i watch that movie i love cranking it up and i think like that's just part of like the beauty of it and like you know i think it works you know tenfold or like aces like when that is just like radiating around you and so as a kid though it's just you know, it was always the imagery and that was always what stood out, you know, the the music is fantastic. And I think that's something that I appreciate uh, e- even more um, when I rewatch it nowadays, because, of course, when, when we're going back and jumping back and watching these movies, it's not like we're watching just old movies all the time. You're mixing it in with newer films. And it seems like while there is good music that is that are coming out in horror films nowadays, you have the basic kind of more mainstream ones or overproduced films that mm-hmm. are, are often using, you know, the musical uh, cues are all the same when it comes to, you know, wanting to scare people because it's a focus on jump scares as opposed to mood music. So I different, mm-hmm. definitely think the Manfredini score in this one works so well because of how it ramps up, how it's very simple at first, and then it gets more uh, complex as the film goes along. But before we jump into this, I definitely want to take two seconds because if you are somebody for some reason who hasn't seen this movie yet, (laughs) we're going to get very spoiler heavy for just everything that's in the film. So I'm going to take two seconds for you guys to pause and go watch the film and come back. 
I've literally counted to two in my head. That was your your point. Um, <laughs> at, at the same time, if you haven't seen this film, definitely get around to it. I understand that you've got people who are all different ages and stuff, so I don't want to sound like we're gatekeeping when we're like, oh, you haven't seen this movie. But if you are somebody who's curious about horror and trying to find a good jumping off point, I think people will definitely steer you in the direction of uh, U.S. classics to become accustomed, you know, stuff like Halloween, stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street, stuff like Friday the 13th, stuff that that is different and good, but it is the most basic and simple stuff to to get across to somebody. You know, if, if you're like, oh, yeah, here's this really esoteric and obtuse film to have the first one you see because you need to see that, that that's not really doing a good job. You, you kind of want to steer the ones that, that, that everybody should start off with, you know, kind of the erector set when it comes to that. And it can be a great set, but you, you still want to kind of start them off. So if you haven't seen the film, we're not trying to throw you under a bus or anything. No. And I mean, I, me personally, I, I, I don't know. I kind of applaud people who have, haven't seen it because, you know, I'm always fascinated about, you know, seeing that for the first time. And I always kind of think like, you know, what movies would I, you know, like to watch for the first time? Um, and so anyone that hasn't seen this, I mean, that's that's awesome. I think that, you know, like watch it, crank the volume up, just make a bowl of popcorn. Just make like, I don't know, it, it is sort of uh, an event, you know, especially for horror fans. And, you know, I would love to go back and rewatch, you know, some key some key horror films for the first time. <laughs> I think everybody would. I, th- I think there's a point that, that you're looking at films new and you run across someone like not in an, Oh, have you seen this? But being like, Oh yeah. When you get a group of people together and you're like, yeah, so this is the night that I have planned. These are the movies, you know, and you have somebody who's mm-hmm. like, Oh, I haven't seen this. And you're like, Oh man, we definitely need to talk about it afterwards because I, I haven't run across somebody who hasn't seen this in a while. It, it, it's weird. And that's why I like asking that question. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Cause for some people, these, these Titans and movies, you know, it could be like, yeah, I just saw it for the first time three years ago and I've just been obsessed mm-hmm. with it since. Or you have people who are like, I, I was 13 years old, you know, when I saw it. Everybody has a different jumping off point. But if it if it moves you and you like it, you know, that's that's fantastic. If you didn't like it, I still really want to have a discussion to find out what it is that doesn't necessarily connect with you. Because personally, I just want everybody to watch whatever movies they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I saw The Shining at like a super young age and that definitely helped sort of cement it as uh pivotal and sort of sort of like you know a, a dna film but i often do wonder if like you know what what that movie would feel like and what that movie would be to me if i saw it when i was like you know 33 right now and you know i kind of find that those like parables like kind of fascinating well i mean that perfectly goes into the third question we have which is what is it about friday the 13th that's helped it stay relevant you know for the past almost 40 years oh man uh, see, that's the thing. I don't, I don't like, I, I wonder if without its countless sequels and without it sort of, uh, like stirring the hornet's nest with, uh, I think Jason lives and making him sort of, uh, Oh, Frankenstein's monster sort of resurrected being, you know, and playing into the supernatural field. I do often wonder if those films never existed, if Friday the 13th would still be heralded because, I, whenever, yeah, whenever the two Friday the 13th come up in the year and I see, you know, everyone sort of making the lists and, you know, checking them twice. And I, I never see Friday the 13th, like the original, really within the top five. And I often see a sort of almost tucked under the rug. And I think 
I don't know. And, and, you know, obviously everyone has their own experience with it. Um, but to me, I think the th- reason it, it holds up for me and it keeps getting better and better with age is because the more that we're moving into this like technologically advanced and this sort of like uh, evolutionary age where everything is moving so fast. And I mean, you can look at like, you know, zombies running, you can just look at uh, just the paranormal activity movies, uh, unfriended, just the way that we're like kind of shaping how movies are shot and digested. Uh, I love how slow and methodical Friday the 13th is. And I love that it, it takes its time. It builds characters. It's, you have the POV shots, you have this sort of like play back to, you know, Bernard Herrmann's score a little bit with Harry Manfredini. And you have these sort of moments where you're paying tribute to Hitchcock or Psycho. And I I do love its deliberateness. And I think that that's lost the further we go in the series. But that's also what I love. You know, like I'm a huge champion of Jason X. And man, that is a movie that gets, I, I think, unnecessarily trash. And I think it's just because, and this is just my opinion, I think people watch it um, with this sort of perception or this like connotation. And I watch it and you brought up sci-fi channel earlier and I, th- I watch it as if it was a sci-fi channel movie. Mm-hmm. And if you watch it from like through that, like with that idea and you look at like the set pieces, they, they it feels very Farscape or like Babylon five. And it just, it, it works. I think it's what they were trying to do. And I think it has a great Jason it has a great, uh, Uber Jason, I think is what he's called. Uh, great kills. It just has this, it's the best, blank in space movie i think we have you know like not leprechaun yeah. not hell not hellraiser which i actually don't mind um i think that Blood one's yeah, yeah um i which i actually think is I, I don't mind it um but yeah it's the best you know the horror franchise or series in space but you look at that movie and it's just it, it feels so different so when i go back and i watch the first one i mean it, you're watching the evolution of this and it is it's like going from, you know, uh, a caveman crawling to, uh, you know, the, the next way down evolutionary process. And that's what I love about it. But I also think that's what gives it the most flack. Because, I mean, if you look at, like, Letterbox, I think it's got a 3.1, which uh, for a film that uh, was shot for, I think, 550000 which mm-hmm. is 200000 more than Evil Dead, which, you know, again, that says – a whole lot about what Sam Raimi did with that movie, but it, you know, wasn't shot for that much. It's not trying to do much. Uh, Jason doesn't even exist. Um, I think it's got a great twist. It's, it's doing all these things really well, but I think because of the later films, because of the Jason, we know, uh, it sort of gets tucked aside. So I don't know if it really is standing the test of time, um, for the general public, but for me, I think, you know, the, you know, the more ages, you know, I just, you know, consider it like wine or, you know, like a violin. I think it just plays even better um, as we, as we get older. And I, I think another element to that is you have lots of people who are constantly going back and, and looking at older movies and, and it feels like they're mm-hmm. trying to go back every decade, people move back a further decade. So while we've had this resurgence for, uh, 80s films for a while it felt like you know the last 10 years people were were looking at the the 70s you know because everybody's championing the the 80s so you have people who are like well, we need to start going back to 
to the 70s and so it feels like people you know are going to go back to the 60s now maybe mm-hmm. in this next decade and so you mentioned it earlier and so i wonder because you had people in the last 10 years looking back at the 70s and and stuff like that do you think uh that the that people who were going and searching for something like um baba's bay of blood do you do you think that comparison holds up or does it hurt uh people who were then eventually going back and, and watching friday the 13th um i mean it's funny like i'm a huge baba fan um and i have been for you know uh, probably a decade but bay of blood is one that i haven't that i watched for the first time um probably three years ago and you know friday the 13th part two is probably my favorite of the uh series um and watching bay of blood i was just like holy shit like you know <laughs> like nothing in that movie is original and i'm like but that's sort of like what i appreciate about it and in some ways i don't know if i would have uh went down the river and sort of caught bay of blood had i not been a huge part two fan because um you know i mean i first knew of bay of blood from like this this crappy dvd i had where it was this twitch of the death nerve and i you know the the art of it the art on it was really terrible and you know but i knew that there were some kills in it that uh like many um in part two that is sort of like was ripped from it and Hmm. yeah i i and it sort of i guess you know goes to the argument of like you know what do like do remakes hinder the original blah 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 and i don't they don't um and i think that you know making uh, such a homage in part two to bay of blood i think it doesn't hinder it i think that it for many people it's sort of the gateway drug if Hmm. you would um yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> I you mean, know? in a roundabout way, it it does. I mean, number two definitely is more of the culprit when it comes to ripping off the the uh, Friday the Thirteenth of you know part one, I guess if we want to call it that. Um, definitely still has a couple beats. Um, of course, the um, hatchet in the face is you know one of the most obvious ones because if you're if you're looking up still images from Friday the Thirteenth, you're either going to see uh, Kevin Bacon, or you're going to see the the machete and the, or I guess, hatchet in the face. And if you're looking up Bay of Blood uh, mm-hmm. online and you're looking at stills, you're going to find the hatchet in the face. So, I mean, that's the most direct call out. And you've got little bits and pieces that, that are there. But um, upon rewatching the movie this time, uh, I did. I mean, it's more of an Americanized, uh, but it definitely has you know, some of those uh, giallo elements in there with oh, the fact sure. that, it's, that, that it's a mystery. I mean, they're even showing less of the killer than, than you get in lots of uh, of those movies. But it, even though it's as cheap as it is, the way that they're dealing with the, the music and the composition, maybe not so much the colors, but they, they are filming it um, almost more artfully, even if it's like an indie artful way. Like some mm. of the shots are, are are definitely more artful than you'd expect from later in the series. Yeah, and I th- yeah, I mean, you know, if if we're gonna say like the slasher evolved from the giallo, then I think uh, it paying respects to it. It sort of it ma- makes sense. And looking back at Friday Thirteenth, I mean, it has the most out of all the the films in the series. I think it has the most giallo sort of uh, like essence to it. Um, you know, there there is no black glove or really even uh seeing kills from the point of view i mean you get like the throat slash um when she's pinned up against the tree but you know it 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 plays it sort of loose and i really like that um i think a lot of it 
feels almost dreamlike. And I do think that the movie is, you know, doesn't really get enough credit for being, for saying more, I think. I mean, it, you have these two actors in it, um, you know, Kevin Bacon's character and, or sorry, not, you have, uh, Ned and then you have, uh, Marcy and they both do like Marcy does a, a Catherine Hepburn impression. And then <laughs> Ned does a Bogart. Okay. And it just feels like they're all sort of playing these characters and sort of playing this dream world where they're like, you know, summer. I mean, to me as someone who was a, an overnight camp counselor, I feel like it, that already is a sort of dream you're living just for those three months. Like you're, it's very separate from everything else. You're very out much in the woods and away from civilization. And, but then you have, you know, Marcy gives this monologue where, she talks about this dream she had where it's thundering and it's like, you know, insanely loud. And then it starts raining blood and it's all very, you know, foreshadowing and it's ominous, but like, it's one of my favorite scenes of the entire series. And I think that people don't like, I don't know, like there's a weight to it that I think is, makes it a bit more, and I'm definitely using this term loosely, but a little bit more artistic, I think than, uh, it gets credit for it because I think people kind of kind of find it to be you know trashy. But yeah, you know, I bet when Bay of Blood came out, they thought the same thing. But I look back and I don't know. I mean, that movie is gorgeous. It's got it, the colors pop, and you know, like I think you said, Friday the Thirteenth is it's not drab by any means, but it's its color palette is you know very far from the the Italian uh, seaside, I guess yeah. if you would, and. But I mean, I that's sort of I love like love you know the counter points in both of those, and I mean that's why I could watch Bay of Blood and still watch Part Two or vice versa. You know, it's just like they 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 complement each other. I think. Yeah. Is there a signature scene or moment that stays with you from Friday the Thirteenth? Um, I mean, definitely Marcy giving the the monologue with Kevin Bacon. Um, yeah. I. Oddly, and I mean, this is just like, you know, I, I think it goes along with the goofs of the or like, you know, uh, bloopers or whatever. It's it's when uh, Mrs. Voorhees gets her head chopped off and you have the hands sort of reaching up. Yes. And every time I watch it, I was like it, it. I mean, they're not her hands. They're just like they're kind of like hairy clubbed hands of some like, you know, Italian guy with like uh, and it's just like ha- it always sticks with me. I think it's it's I think it's it's very funny. Um Although I'm not one of those people who will sit and watch Friday the 13th and like, you know, guttural laugh. I, I, it's an inward sort of chuckle, but, um, Marcy's monologue. Um, and then I think sort of everything with the one camp counselor who's supposed to be the cook, her getting there. (laughs) I just find her journey to be so funny because she gets in the car with this, uh, trucker and he's just like, you know, you, you dumb kids, you stupid kids. And like, she's just like, oh, well, at least I don't believe in ghosts. And it's just it's like a matter of fact, like the youths of America are so stupid sort of moment. And uh, I don't know. I, 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 she never gets to camp. You know, she's yeah. just so close. And it's, I don't know. She's a character I kind of uh, remember fondly. Uh, upon rewatching it, there were a couple moments that, that stuck uh, with me, which... I, one of them I wouldn't say is the the greatest thing about the movie, but it was the presentation of it was the the two scenes that you get with the town folks, the one that's in the diner and then the one that's in the other diner. Um, you get just a small little sense of of the people in the town and and their lives. 
and it's not filled with animosity that you normally get when it comes to these movies of being it like oh yeah the people who live in this town are clearly hicks or blah 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 they get disturbed when she uh, mentions camp blood and enos of course you know is is the more vocal but none of them are like <clears throat> oh you're, you're a terrible kid or no one's acting completely over the top and gross mm-hmm. or anything you know like none of them's a a character and it's just these people in their sweet little lives that here's this thing that happened that they want to forget about but they're they don't have any outright animosity towards anybody was you know kind of nice as opposed to the normal um you always have people who who, who are terrible or are completely backwards when it comes to these movies and so seeing that just felt nice but then um mm-hmm. i think what's become my favorite shot of the movie is uh steve in the raincoat emerging from the darkness coming up to the camera that's Mm -hmm. that's really pamela Voorhees and talking to it just because it it just stays on that shot for a lot longer than most other movies would do so that you have him in the foreground come up to get to the point where he talks directly you know to the individual and that it the fact that it just took the time to set and do that or um when you have marcy giving the monologue and kevin bacon behind her and because it just stays on that shot for a bit, you can notice that there's the blood that's dripping from the top bunk that's mm-hmm. on the edge of the pillow and the edge of the bed right next to them. And that if they just rolled over a little bit more and weren't having this moment about her dream, that they would notice that there's blood and be like, something's up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And going with that, I mean, I think uh, like another one of my favorite scenes is when Ned is sort of walking along the lake and he sees um, – Marcy and uh, Jack sort of uh, canoodling. I'll I'll use that word, whatever. Um, and uh, he just looks so forlorn, and like he goes pretty much just up to a bunk, I guess, to be by himself or alone. And I mean, the Ned is the Shelley of the movie. I think not to you know such an exaggerated point. I actually really <laughs> like Ned, but he is the he's like the the camp. Up until that point, I think he's very goofy and he's just very uh he's like an extrovert and then in that that precise moment there's like there's like kind of a sadness that you see and then he goes up sort of like charlie brown walks up to the cabin and you don't see him die and i think that's what i really appreciate about that movie is that uh it it, this this character that you're with that you do i think develop a fondness for i think like you do with all these camp counselors you know unlike let's say the the remake which i like but I hate so many of those characters and I think, I think every single character in this movie, I, I really adore. Like I have a soft spot, um, you know, even Steve Christie, you know, yeah. with his red Short bandana shorts. and, Oh, Oh yeah. His, his, his now iconic sort of look that I think is, you know, a lot more developed in certain areas, but um, yeah, I don't know. There's, I, I feel for all the characters. And so like when you see somebody not get killed or get killed off screen, it's, Oh, there's like a weight to it, you know, yeah. it's it, something gets sort of, you know, pulled from you. And that that his sort of departure always, always stuck with me. They almost feel like in, in this one, they almost feel uh, maybe it's too far to push it, but they almost feel like the most innocent out of oh, all, yeah. like of all the camp counselor groups. They, you know, they're just having a good time. Yes, they, you know, a couple of them smoke marijuana, but they're. They're just playing the game of, of strip monopoly. And, and it's mm-hmm. it's not really to be like, yeah, I'm going to bed one of you. It's just like, let's do this. This might be a little bit fun and outside the norm. And then you've got, you know, the couple that's spending time off together. And you've got your goofball and you've got 
you know, Steve, who, who's got the history with Alice that he's trying to mend the fence with. And you get a sense of these characters as opposed to them just being the archetypes that you get later in the series that, that you see everybody kind of interact. And I mean, heck, they do, I think, the most work out of any of the counselors in any of the movies. And they're not just people who are saying we're, we're up here to just party. So you have a sense of them that's that's kind of um, different from most of the other groups. Yeah, I think um, I think what I really appreciate about it is that none of the characters come off, uh, you know, chauvinistic or misogynistic. And I think that there's, you know, they're all, yeah, relatively innocent. You know, I'm not going to say, you know, them smoking weed is breaking that. But, yeah, the most they do is they play, you know, strip Monopoly. But even when that game gets sort of, you know, canceled by the door blowing open, you know, they – they they end the night and I'm just like oh no like I just like I don't I don't mind hanging out with you guys like it's like for a brief moment it becomes this like small hangout movie mm-hmm. and I think that's what I really love about it and what it makes me sort of uh, look back at the characters you know fondly because I mean even in part two you get the guy who steals the girl's clothes when she's skinny zipping and like you know there's a lot more mischief at play and mm-hmm. I think as the series continues um, I think maybe jason lives is probably the the next one i think that probably has the most innocence to it um but it's also so fast paced that like you don't really have time to sort of meddle or sit with these kids um but yeah i I really love that about it and i do i think like i don't know it's it is it is slow but not in a negative way and it's i think yeah I, i really love it it's I love all the characters. And I mean, I really do wish that uh, Janine Taylor, who plays Marcy, went on to do things uh, mm-hmm. because I think she's a great actress. I, I think all of them really great actors. And I mean, it's kind of funny outside of Kevin Bacon, like most of them did nothing else. And that one of the people who goes on to do the, the most is somebody who has the, the the smallest little bit in the movie as the uh, the bus boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is crazy. I don't know. It's it's I I wonder you know what they tried to do after you know if they like kind of like got like pushed aside. But like I mean I've looked at their like you know filmography and I tried to look it up and there's there's not much. I mean I mean that happens kind of at this point with the the regularity you know especially when you're getting into the early '80s and and the studios and companies who are just punching out and punching out and punching out a movie that you know you've got this in production and basically the moment that it ends they're working on the next one and then you've got five other movies that are you know under like paramount's banner and then you've got a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of others and it it almost feels like at that time since you had so many of these small and inexpensive films that were going on at the same time that unless you were uh, the biggest name in it or had the biggest part in it that you kind of had a chance that you were going to be pushed under the rug yeah yeah for sure I mean, I mean, I look at, you know, some of my favorite slashers of the 80s that I don't think are really talked about that much. I mean, one of them is Curtains. And, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think many people, you know, aside from Stryker, who plays, I've, I do not remember the actor's name, but, you know, none of them really went on to do much. And same with like House and Sorority Row. It's just, you know, it's sort of was this one off, you know, like the act that was just like their one hit wonder kind of kind of gig. Um, but, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's sort of what I love about a lot of the series is that, you know, they're they're very unfamiliar faces and like going back and rewatching them. We're not sort of tainted with, let's say, I don't know, like a, a, an explosive personal life or, you know, uh, <laughs> stuff they've done. Like when we when I go back and watch it, aside from Kevin Bacon, like, you know, it's, and uh, the, these 
these people will always be these characters and that's sort of what i love yeah i mean the just the series as a whole you don't have a lot of um of people who who go on to become the 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 big triple a hitters i mean you do have people who end up you know becoming icons and in Mm -hmm. that genre but i mean okay you've got kevin bacon in this one um even though he might not be a triple a name but he's a name that even some mainstream people know of course isn't crispin glover you've got Mm -hmm. Corey feldman you've got tony goldwyn showing up in number six oh yeah and i like past that it's like you can't really think of anybody that's like that somebody a, a mom or dad at home might might easily know and of course, the only reason they know of Tony Goldwyn is because of Gold Ghost, probably. Yeah, uh, I mean, you got you got Betsy Palmer, um, which I, you know, I mean, I, I do really love that she didn't want to come on and do this movie. Yeah. Um, yet she gives this like performance with such like power. Um, and I, I sadly have not seen her in anything else, um, which is my own doing, you know, <laughs> rightfully so. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I like that, you know, there's n- none of them are, are tainted too much. You know, it's, you know, you might see somebody in Return of the Living Dead, but like they're, they're still sort of the same Tommy Jarvis in a way, yeah. you know, it's and yeah, I, I think that sort of aids the original especially. But yeah, I mean, Ginny from part two will always be my favorite um, yes. of the, of the final girls. I'm 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 pro number two and I'm pro Jenny. I've I've gone down on record. I've been on several podcasts, did a fan commentary, just to make sure that I could champion uh, Jenny in that film. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been interesting if you had Alice sort of utilize her like, uh, I guess, artistic yearnings or you know her <laughs> ability to draw as sort of a a, a weapon. The way Jenny uses her uh, psychology major degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I I mean, you know, she. I have a tattoo of Ginny and I think she's probably one of the best final girls in, I guess the, the FG history. I, Hey, I'm, I'm for that. Now, of course we would be remiss if we were talking, you know, doing uh, an anniversary episode for a film like Friday the 13th and not going into the, the gore that's in the film and, and talking about the craft of Tom Savini. Um, Of course, Savini's gone on to do a whole bunch of, of films, but uh, how do you think that, the kills rack up in this film compared to the rest of the series. I mean, the thing that I kind of find like sort of funny is that the MPA told them to tone down the gore for part two. And uh, I don't know. I reflect on part two just being maybe not gorier, but definitely more violent than this because, um, and I forget his name, the guy in the wheelchair, when he gets the machete to the face, oh. and he just essentially goes all the way down the stairs. Um, it's not necessarily the most violent, but it is the most striking. And I think that lends to it sort of being or feeling more violent than it is. Mm-hmm. And for this, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I, I, I know, you know, Savini had his hand in this and he has some great work and most notably the makeup on, little Jason when he pops out of the canoe at the end um, in what I will firmly believe is a dream. I don't really go any other way, but you know, it's fun hearing debates about that, but um, the, the math board, doesn't add up, Greg. It, it doesn't No, especially the cops were already at the beach, you know, they were looking. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't often find this to be that gory. Um, you know, I think it's, it's almost got that, 
I, I, that seven sort of appeal where it's like you're you're discovering the bodies afterwards and you're kind of coming upon these like bloodied scenes. Um, so it lends more, you know, some ways to the imagination. Um, I do think Kevin Bacon getting the arrow through the neck is probably one of the grossest things because in the just like the prosthetic or like the special effects work on it, you could just see it sort of popping out of the skin without piercing it. And mm-hmm. then it hits and like, the, I don't know, the blood is super like uh, crimson and it's just, it, it's yeah, it's one of the more unsettling, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. When I look back on this movie, I just don't really think of it. I don't think of the, the gore. So like, you know, reading about the MPA wanting to tone them down. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's strange. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Uh, I number uh, or the, uh, the the Kevin Bacon kill in the film. I don't think it's the greatest kill of the series, hmm. but I think it might be the most iconic kill of the series. And and I'm I'm happy with that, and I'm fine with that because if if there was an image, just the craft that you have in that for for a film as small and as cheap as this, you know that that was being made at a point where you're getting into, like I said, the rapid fire time where you have all these movies that are starting to come out and just everybody's trying to make, you know, cheap little ones to, to get on. Mm. And, but it's coming out of the time that's starting that, that wave that having that iconic image of, you know, the arrowhead popping out and that, that little burp of blood basically coming out, <laughs> just it, it's, it sticks in your mind. You can mention to like anybody who they, they might not like the original Friday the 13th and they might, uh, you know, like later once in the series, but you mentioned that and you, and you say, just like you had the reaction to, you say the burp of blood, they know exactly what you're talking about and it sticks in your mind. And, and I think that's what makes it probably one of the most iconic kills. Uh, I'm fine with it not being as gory as some of the other ones and it not being mm-hmm. incredibly gory. Cause I, I like um, the effectiveness of just how thoroughly done the simplicity of some of the kills are, you know, by having that, mm-hmm. um, that slash across the throat in the woods. Oh having, yeah. Having that moment where you're just staring at, and then the blood starts to come in and it's just like, you feel it. It's not the most, you know, crazy or inventive, but like seeing the, the hatchet in the face as she falls over, even though it's just for a second, but you still see it and you feel it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more effective at times. You might enjoy uh, a more creative or over the top kill, but you might not feel it. These are ones that you're not going, oh, and then having that laughter. This is one that that, that you're seeing it. And you're like, oh, damn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely like blink or miss sort of horror or uh, mm-hmm. gore. Like, And I mean, I think besides the throats uh, slash, I mean, I think the first time I ever saw that was uh, as a kid watching Braveheart. And I was just like totally mortified. And, you know, I think this is very akin to it. And I think that there's something very uh visceral about it i mean i don't think that she sells getting her throat cut as yeah. much as maybe you know other people have but i think that um i mean personally i think the the spear in the bed uh in part two i think is almost as iconic as mm-hmm. jack's uh arrow through the throat um but yeah i mean i have like this you know long sleeve shirt from a uh, video grime printing of uh marcy's face with the axe in it and yeah i mean i i you know i've i've worn that out and i've had you know people compliment it and like it's (laughs) it's something that people i i mean maybe they're seeing it for the first time and they're like oh damn like 
nice shirt. That's cool. But, or they probably know it. And I think like, it's, yeah, it's these blinker miss shots and like, you know, it, you see it afterwards. And I think it's similar to, to Ned, you only see his body yeah. sort of bleeding out on the top bunk. And it's just like, it's, it's what I appreciate about it because most people, when they watch part one are more than likely going to watch the second one afterwards, or maybe, uh, make a trilogy out of it or hell watch, you know, all of them. And the kills are going to get amplified. I mean, I, you know, don't really care for Jason goes to hell, but it has one of the gnarliest kills when he like, you know, they're having sex in the tent and it's, it's insane. And so, I mean, you know, you're just tracking this history of amplitude and it's like, you know, magnified the violence. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I think it makes me go back and watch, you know, the original and be like, I like in some regards how tame it is, you know? Uh, there's also uh, a meanness to it that that gets amplified when you go to number two that doesn't get hit upon as much uh, later in the series. And and that's just because of little moments that that stayed with me is the, the, the way uh, that Mrs. Verhees is, you know, tracking her through the barn, you know, mm-hmm. and that she had the moment where where she was being nice and sweet and she brushes Alice's hair away from her face. But then she remembers and is triggered again by by the death of her son and just mm-hmm. snaps and is going after her and then when alice gets back in the house and she just takes the body and throws it through the fucking window at her like that's the here's here's the lady like just imagine mrs Burry's out there just like having that angry mom strength or you know over the death oh, of yeah. her son and just taking this body and just throwing it through the window <laughs> i mean i think what i love about uh Miss Voorhees is they they sort of play up the the Leatherface uh aspect in which mm. you know like Leatherface is not leaving the the grounds he's not going and you know killing people in Oklahoma or outside it, it's anyone that trespasses in his house you know it's very territorial and you know for uh you know Pamela Voorhees it's the same thing I mean she's you know she's set you know done tons of things to this camp to sort of ward off people and. You know, it's it, it. These camp counselors, unfortunately, have gotten sort of a bit too close to her nest, and yeah, like it stirs it up. But like when she first makes an appearance out, you know, out of the jeep, and she's like standing in front of the he- the headlights, and it's just such like a magnanimous moment where it's you know y- you do get this relief, and like every time I watch it, I'm like I'm, I I know you're the killer, but like at the same time, I don't know, I still feel reassured. You know, like it's it's her presence and her like, you know, magnetism and it it lends his hand to like her scenes being, you know, very cruel because then you start piecing together like, oh, shit. OK, like she's been like, you know, she's picked one of them up hitchhiking. She's like it, like she's been doing this for the past, like, you know, uh, 24 hours. And it's just becomes this very manipulative or like, you know, uh, like methodical way of just dispatching everybody. And yeah, I mean, I do think not to run off on a tangent that I, that part two is it you know may have the most mean-spirited kill with um uh probably the guy in the wheelchair wish i knew his name uh <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really selling it that i love that movie huh um but yeah i, I think it, you know it this is a bit more you know for lack of a better term intelligent um mm-hmm. about it but yeah, I, it's you know one of the reasons I think this movie is you know it is what it, like it is what it is you know. But before we get to the fourth and fifth question, do you want to get weird for a second? Yeah, let's get freaky. Okay, 
So, so we're talking about Pamela Voorhees, and this is something that I was thinking about this time. So we know that she has a Jeep. She picks up one person out of town and then comes around town. What do you think her life is before this? Like, how? Because we've had you know, some decades go between. So, like, has she lived somewhere else? Does she still live in town? Because we know that, that since they're getting close to the opening of it, that that's what sets her off. But why didn't she pick them off beforehand when they first started, you know, the work a couple weeks earlier? Because Steve's been there um, long enough, you know, to uh, for you know, to be acclimated and everything at this point and, and feel like they're being close. It's like, so like, did she see it in the newspaper one day that they were going to be, you know, close to opening? And then that's what causes her to, you know, trigger and, 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 and basically spring into action. You know, is she driving from another state in, in her Jeep? Like, <laughs> is, is she, is she having a normal life or is she just somebody who lives in town and they're just like, Oh, poor Mrs. Voorhees, her kid died several several years ago and then there there were some murders because she's been living on the low for quite a while at least um i would yeah i mean this is supposed to take place 21 22 years after his murder um or maybe not his murder but because i know the the opening scene is 1958 because they're playing that godforsaken uh tom song or whatever which I, i i oddly know you know, came out in 1958. Cause I think I was like one time trying to do like continuity. I was like looking for like, Oh, like, you know, let's like find errors in this. And I was like, Whoa, okay. Like they got that right. Um, I, I don't know. And this could, this might, you know, not be bulletproof. And I would love for anybody on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm real brew. So I would love for people to kind of send me their ideas, but I think that she knows Jason's alive. I think that, uh, and again, like this might be a canoe with holes in it, but I think that she, I think she lives on the grounds. I think that she, you know, is sort of taking care of Jason, who at this point will be uh, in the shack, basically. In the shack, I, I think. I mean, we we look at and like I think the, the the idea of him witnessing the murder of his mom at the end of part one and sort of, you know, thus taking you know uh, matters into his own hand. I think that's extremely plausible. I think that she's sort of been taking care of him and she's sort of like, and then he, so he's, he's like the leather face and she's sort of like making sure he's okay. And mm. maybe, you know, building up this, you know, uh, monster to sort of, you know, let loose, you know, or, or she just hasn't specifically. So it, she, you know, he can eventually take over for her and keeping, you know, camp blood, uh, I guess, still have blood in it you know and like yeah. I, it's i don't i don't i don't know because like you she, she's not you know working in town i don't think anyone in town necessarily knows her they might know of her and mm-hmm. driving out of state lines i think is a beautiful romantic idea but i think she's staying put with her uh with her jeep and i don't know i mean it's a it's a theory that i don't know holds much but that's what i would like to think i guess well i mean there's there's anything that that's what i'm curious about it because it's one of the the few things that everyone wants to dissect uh, the abilities of jason as the film goes on but we don't really mm-hmm. spend time with the person who's responsible for lots of these inciting incidents um itself you know it's like is is she raising and taking care of him in the um in the cabin but for the most part he's kind of zonked out like we know he doesn't talk 
in in any of the movies so maybe that was a a side effect of the drowning you know maybe she he mostly drowned and and you know she's been nursing him him back and everything and and kind of like a, a reverse but still alive norman bates type thing is that you know mm-hmm. she's been been taking care of him and because he can't speak that she's kind of uh developed like a dissociative uh personality where where she's talking for him since we know that that she's the one you know who's doing kill a mommy and everything that maybe that's mm-hmm. in her mind she's talking for him because he can't and because she's got even if he's a giant monster which we know he basically becomes that in her mind she's like i have to protect you because no one was there to protect you to begin with and that, like that's what sets her off you know i mean it could be any of these those, those things and and don't don't make fun of crossing state lines because we know that goddamn <laughs> jason is fine hitchhiking all the way to kill somebody in part two i mean that's true and but I, I I will say that in part two he definitely fits the backwoods sort of wrong turn hillbilly aesthetic a bit more and I don't know you know maybe people there are more likely to pick up somebody who <laughs> you know has only a face a mom could love but I in think a burlap the, sack well I think is it pre burlap sack or oh well he is going after Adrian yeah um in the beginning and uh, yeah. Oh yeah, okay, burlap sack. I don't know. People are weird, but I I think I, I think that especially if you're looking at part two, um, the way Jenny sort of uses psychology to fight him. I mean, like there's no there's no reason that he would ever see her wearing his mother's sweater, mm-hmm. the same sweater that she wore the night she died, and see her like you know his mom if he wasn't seeing her, you know, in that sweater before or seeing yeah. her you know, at that age. So to me, it's, you know, this isn't a boy or, you know, a man who last saw his mom, um, you know, before he drowned. Like, this is someone who I think has just like, has sort of just been with his mom as like the sole person in his life for, you know, over two decades. And that's what sort of leads to Ginny being able to manipulate him. And so, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like, you know, toot my own horn, but I, I kind of believe that. You know, but he also crossing state lines, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, I'll, I'll support it. I'll support it. Maybe they go to the county fair, uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, so who, who knows? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a prize pig once upon a time. <laughs> His name was babe. <laughs> um, now the fourth question is weird when it comes to something like this. When you, when you have a movie that's birthed, uh, a gigantic series, you know, an, an iconic series, even if you're somebody who doesn't necessarily like horror you know of friday the 13th you know of jason you know where these things go because that they have movies that that you know have been coming out every several years so normally we say is there you know a a modern or recent film uh that definitely feels like friday the 13th um it's probably difficult you know for this one because of the way horror is gone but if you can think of one that that would be kind of you know similar or you could put up next to it um, well, are you speaking specifically about uh, like within the same subgenre, or just like this, like the the impact it had? Uh, I mean, you could go with impact. I, I was thinking something that that kind of unfolds the same way as this one, and, and that's what I was trying to say more more modern. Because if you say from the '80s, you can be like, yeah, here's a giant list for you. Here's here's some movies from the '90s too, but like more more recent, you know, within the last like 10, 20 years. That's what I'm mm-hmm. trying to think of anything. If you can think of something that has the same impact from the last 10 to 20 years as this, 
that would work. I mean, there, there's a couple I can think of for for that as well. Um, I don't know if. I mean, it's not necessarily the same genre, and it is a you know remake or reboot. Um, you know, Fede Alvarez's uh, Evil Dead, I think, drew so many people into the theaters um, that either adored Sam Raimi's, uh, grew up with it, caught it later in the '90s, or and it, I think it also drew a ton of people who like never never seen that and maybe have no interest because it's you know maybe a bit too comical, you know, to them. Um, but that I think had a huge impact. Um, if we're going to go slasher, uh, I think, I don't know. I really love the house of wax remake. And I remember that being pretty popular when it came out. Um, I know it, you know, people seem to really hate it. I think it's exceptional. Um, it's probably one of my favorites of the past two decades. Um, but when it came out, I mean, it had, you know, Chad Michael Murray in it, Paris Hilton, um, Elijah Cuthbert. Like it just had these uh, Jared Padalecki. Like it had people that we, you know, sort of sort of knew of. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think people went in droves. I, I'm saying this without knowing the actual numbers it had on the weekend. So <laughs> I was like, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I could be speaking out of my ass. But I think that it had the the teen fanfare. Uh, um, you know, to draw people in because I mean, Paris Hilton was huge. She was everywhere. Um, and I also think that you know, it being sort of a remake. Um, it. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm stumbling through that question. You know, as you can hear. But uh, yeah, no, that. No, no, that's. I, I mean, that's. Don't 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 feel bad about that. Uh, first of all, to answer your question about House of Wax, um, it was an estimated forty million dollars to make it. Um, U.S. first weekend uh, gross was 12 million. Ended up making Oof. worldwide in the end 68 million. Okay, well, I'm now eating my words. That was well, no, no. If if you if you want to feel slightly better about it, House of Wax is definitely a movie that I've noticed in the last two years has definitely taken on a new life with lots of people starting out with the comment. I know lots of people want to shit on house of wax, but I really like it. And then just Mm. droves of horror fans saying, no, I really like it too. So there is, there is a large contingent who, um, who do enjoy it. And um, just uh, one of the last films that I got to put on at um, Alamo draft house for terror Tuesday was tourist trap. And afterwards, a whole bunch of people awesome. said, oh, my God, I never realized how much House of Wax was actually Tourist Trap as opposed to a remake of House of Wax. So, mm-hmm. so that that was fun to see people, you know, coming up and, and, and mentioning that. But about not being able to answer the question, don't don't feel bad about it. That That's one of the things that I like when there isn't um, a pure set question. It kind of shows the direction that horror has gone, you know, over the last 40 years and stuff is that what when it's more difficult to think of a recent movie um, that exemplifies what the movie we're talking about does well, that that shows that it is kind of a singular piece unto its time. And it actually kind of strengthens the argument about that movie being a film that people are continually going back and watching again and again and again, as opposed to one uh, that you can easily be like, Oh yeah, this film is very reminiscent of this because the the harder it is, it kind of uh, lets that movie stand uh, and stone and if the movie that we're able to compare it to easily is a movie that was made you know several years before that 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 mm. helps it out even much so 
so not being able to 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 find that direct comparison um i, I think works in its favor especially when it comes to slashers um that that are set at camps and stuff nowadays people are more so going in the uh the more meta and comedy horror vein as opposed to just doing a straight slasher yeah yeah i mean i definitely was gonna yeah i mean final girls i think is like really uh, incredible movie and i love it i think it's like uh sort of unbelievably touching it has like more heart than it really should be allowed to have um <laughs> but i don't i don't remember that making much of a spark and i think that's sort of how i feel um looking at slashers now a lot of them get put on you know shutter or vod or they go straight to netflix and i mean you know aside from like Hellfest, uh, I think slashers hitting theaters is sort of becoming a bit more of a rarity. And, you know, I, I think Freddy vs. Jason, you know, the culmination of two franchises, I think, uh, you know, as problematic as that movie is and as much of a timestamp it is, you know, uh, I remember seeing that in theaters and it was, you know, slammed. And I, I just kind of couldn't believe that there's this many freddie and jason fans all kind of coming together and i don't if that movie came out now i you know it wouldn't have the same reception um you know even though you know you have you know the friday 13th game uh i know you have you know a lot of you know things stuck in court but you know i think the only time i ever really hear people talking about friday 13th with you know any adoration is you know on you know twitter and like the certain you know, fan groups wanting like, you know, a new one, like having, you know, uh, Cam Crystal Lake be uh, a ski lodge, you know, or like, you know, like because everyone wants Friday 13th set in snow. And I think that, you know, there's so much ripe material for it. But mm. would I ever see that, you know, hit theaters? No, I think that 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 age is sort of come and gone, which is, yeah. you know, a little sad, which I mean, did, did you see uh, did you see Wrong Turn 5 or whatever it is that that's set partly in snow um i have the wrong turn collection i have only (laughs) seen the first two i've actually i think i I put up a poll on twitter like maybe a month ago when we you know sort of started this quarantine i was like all right what franchise should i marathon and the hellraiser one one um so that's that's in my near future which i think i'm gonna be doing uh four through uh god what is there like 11 or 12 yeah yeah technically why, why why four I, I know this is off topic and we've got one more question to get to but i'm curious to to hear the explanation why you want to jump to four i mean i understand in 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 when you're talking about like theatricality probably but like because i know four has more uh fans um than when you get on to i guess inferno <laughs> yeah. on yeah uh i mean i i do love how inferno is this weird sort of max Payne hard-boiled <laughs> uh noir beast i mean it's you know and it has a uh, craig um, Craig schaefer yeah from nightbreed and i i have a fondness for it for that i don't know if that will hold up on a revisit but i think one through three are um three very much less so even though i do love the cenobi who throws cds um <laughs> you know because like you're not gonna have that now no one's gonna be shooting mp like you know mp mp4 files at your face um but I think one through three are very much like, uh, you know, there's T-shirts of them. There are figures like people do love them. Like they're much more iconic. And I think once you get to bloodlines where like it's sort of it jumps all over the place trying to tell these origins, I think, 
it starting off, you know, that's the, the origin of the puzzle box. I think moving up from that is sort of interesting, but also just on my end, I haven't seen anything past five. Oh, oh. So this is like, oh. yeah. So <laughs> I know. Oh. I mean, so that's that's. I mean, like that's why it's more of an interest, and I I I'm gonna be you know eating crow or whatever because I know I'm gonna get to like the the seventh one and want to just like you know you know be taken away in chains you know to oh, you know yeah. I, I think the that's the one where, where Lance uh, Hendrickson shows up so that's well, that doesn't I, sound I, that bad I love the actor but we're we're talking about like um um uh, in in early to mid aughts era of 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 him where he was basically literally in like every vod movie that came so uh, okay that came out so it got to the point that you saw his name on there and you're like oh who do you owe money to now i mean lance henderson's the type where i'm just like okay am i watching hard target for john woo van damme or lance henderson and i don't know it's a, it's, it's a tough question so if you say lance henderson is in something i you know i, I perk is- up a little bit but this, this is that like somebody caught him on a lunch break from any of those movies. And he's like, <laughs> he's looking at his watch and he's like, I got, you, you don't have much time. Um, yeah, but does he still bring sort of like, you know, an A minus game, you know? <sighs> oh, oh, uh, I mean, that's difficult because I love the guy, but I feel like in like, this is, this is like, he may have taken an Ambien like two hours before he was in the movie. <laughs> so, and, and again, this is as somebody who who loves him. So yeah, I will definitely follow along and, and see how uh, you take um, from basically number five on. Uh, speaking of number five, we're at the final question uh, that we ask everybody, and that's having rewatched this film again recently. Do you still think it's worthy of the reverence and the champion that you've done in the past for it, or do you think that the shine is slowly fading away? Um. I, I think it keeps growing, um, and which is kind of you know a, a little strange because I think I remember watching this like five or six years ago, and I mean I've seen it like countless times, and yeah, it was always sort of the lesser entry. And I think I was in the same camp as most people, or I was just like, okay, well, like you know, like just 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 give me Jason, you know, like I just like. And to me, especially being a fan of Part Two, I was always just like you know, like I. I almost just want to start with two and I don't necessarily need to see the, uh, the candle lit for Jason to, you know, go ape shit on people, but, uh, watching it. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it's cause my bones are slowing down that like, I just like really just love watching these characters unfold and like things not really, not really happen until, uh, the last like half hour. Cause I mean, you, you look at, you know, uh, Adrian's character, like she's sort of running from here and there at the end for like almost a good half hour. And I sort of, I sort of love that. It almost becomes and feels sort of like a cat and mouse chase. And um, I, I don't know. There's, there's, yeah, it's my fondness for it only grows. Um, Cause I remember probably giving it like a, you know, if we're going on letterbox, you know, uh, reviews, which sort of dictates a lot of my life is just like, I, I think I gave it a three, no heart, and then it just sort of moved up to a four and a heart. And I think I, you know, for set the tape, um, you know, two and a half years ago, I, I ranked all of them and it's really funny. Like, I mean, the ranking the Friday the 13th films is something that 
I can probably do every year and it will always be different. And that's what I love about them is that I could rank in, you know, Friday the 13th. Um, it could be, you know, my third favorite. And then the next year it could be, you know, my six and like it, it, but my appreciation for it as a film and what Steve, uh, or Sean Cunningham is doing, um, along with Steve Miner, I guess I'll just throw that out there is, you know, I, I appreciate it more and more. And it's, I don't know. It's the, the same with looking at, you know, uh, 21st century zombies versus, you know, the, the earlier stuff. I mean, like, you know, I, I love burial grounds, you know, it's not a good movie, <laughs> but there's something about the, the clay face zombies, uh, like, you know, the nipple biting that it's just like really, it, it stands out now. And like, it will only sort of amplify the further we get away from there, which is why, you know, uh, the slashers that come out now, um, I I was very surprised when I watched uh, Hellfest recently. I really loved it, and I totally thought I wasn't going to because I think that like my mind is sort of trained to dismiss um, a lot of slashers now, and I think that's sort of you know that's my fault, but it's also just sort of like the trajectory of the slasher and how it just sort of gets dumped to to VOD or it just it gets put on shutter, and you know I think all these platforms are doing really great things for the genre. And I just need to, you know, sort of remove that restriction that I'm sort of creating and, and, and jump in because I mean, like, otherwise I won't watch movies like hush, you know, or like Bloodfest, and, you know, and I think maybe the same people who are really sort of stuck in the mid seventies and the eighties of the slasher genre, excuse me, they, they can't like appreciate, let's say the house of wax, wax remake, which I, you know, I, I, I will throw the word brilliant out there. I think it like it, it's, it's long, but it, it, it works to its advantage. And I, just the way I think Friday the 13th is, um, methodically paced, but to its advantage, like it doesn't, it, it doesn't hinder it. And yeah, I, I, I think that this movie, this movie to me is bulletproof. I think that this point where I'm at in my life and how I sort of absorb movies, it won't ever falter it could only sort of grow and you know i i've sort of you know hopefully the same you know down the line might happen with uh final chapter and i you know i i'm like the minority here i don't care for final chapter <laughs> and uh you know but there are people out there who love a new beginning and that's fine you know i i, I love how people sort of you know it can just you know, gleam and pick things off from these movies that they really love. And I mean, you know, there's so many movies out there in this series for people to sort of, you know, claim as their favorite. And, you know, I'll never say that, you know, anyone is wrong in that. Exactly. You've got 12 movies to, to choose from, all of which came out in the theaters. Unlike the Hell World, sorry, Hellraiser series. <laughs> sorry to bring it back to that. Um, oh, but, but you've got 12 movies so that there's something, you know, at, you know, for everybody out there. And, and I don't think that one person liking one, and disliking another, you know, hurts those films at all. Um, <clears throat> to give everybody a peek behind the curtain, as I've started doing recently, we're recording this towards the end of April. Um, so th this will be coming out well after that, but we know that we still won't be at a point when we're really going to see movies in theaters, because even if they open up the theaters, it, nothing's really coming out until the beginning of July. Currently, it could get pushed mm -hmm. back. We don't know. But the question that I've been asking everybody to sign off is um, besides House of Wax, 
Um, what are what are three movies that you would suggest for people to take this time and to uh, to watch or revisit? It doesn't have to be a new film, but they can be new films if you'd like. Um, are we sticking sort of with slashers? It can be anything. Anything. Wow. Um, well, I did just recently revisit Die Hard with a Vengeance. I'm just going to throw that out there. I think it is the best Die Hard. Um, I, uh, sure, you know, you can make a debate for it. I, I do love the, I, I love how Die Hard with a Vengeance is a sprawling, horizontal, um, like action film versus the sort of stacked verticalness of Die Hard. But mm-hmm. I think with a Vengeance is, you know, on this rewatch, it sort of hit me as like one of the best action films of the nineties. Um, you know, I, one of my favorite top five ever films is speed. And so, you know, this, this has moments of that. And Mm. I don't know, watching movies that are shot in New York city where it just feels like, you know, someone sort of like, like did a, you know, a Nabel Ferreira or a Larry Cohen just picked up the camera and started filming it. Like this destroyed the city at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean like when the, when the taxi's going through central park, like Mm. you just get a sense of, of new york citizens because a lot of them are like standing up being like what the fuck you jerk and like you're like i was like holy shit like if anyone ever did that they'd probably get pulled from the cab and beat the shit like i mean this it just embodies new york sort of like energy and like vibe and like i love that about that movie all right die hard with the vengeance um first of all i have to say that uh never has silence on a podcast come off as threatening to someone because i noticed that is i I, w- I was letting you defend yourself and i was silent for two seconds and you were like i know i've, I've got to come up with an argument for it but no I, I wanted you to speak your piece i'm for i'm for the whole diehard series one two three nothing else exists after that um we should have collective amnesia that's all i'm gonna say what's your second film um well i feel like we have a whole whole episode just about that um I, I, I mentioned it before. I will say curtains. I think that it's sort of um, an unsung, um, I think, Canadian slasher. Um, and, you know, it, it has this. It, I mean, if we're going to talk about like snowy settings and slashers, I mean, you brought up Wrong Turn 5. Uh, I really, you know, there aren't that many. And curtains is like peak sort of like snowy setting. And, you know, you have someone who's, you know, ice skating and is chased and is killed with a, a sickle. The mask is great. You have this sort of like weird, I don't know if it's like red herring or like a MacGuffin, but like this doll, which like, you know, it doesn't do anything aside from distract, I guess. And it doesn't really play much with the character once you figure out who it is. But it has this wonderful sort of like backstage uh, theater setting. And it has like this really cool final sort of set piece where um, this woman's being chased through like, um, like a prop den. And it's really cool. It it just sort of it feels very um to to an extent like blood and black lace. Like there's like you know mannequins and there's like garments and it it has a bit of color to it. And I think it's a movie that people don't either like see or they don't talk enough about. Um, and I think you know we're sort of you know similar to House of Wax getting or sorry Crimson Peak getting its sort of its time. I think mm-hmm. you know through discussions on Twitter, you know, like, I mean, you know, uh, if you're on Twitter long enough, you know, it's, you see films sort of, you know, play that merry ground where it's like they're, they, every, you know, certain time of the, of the year they're talked about, you know, like scream 
will always have its time. Yeah. You know, I think last year it was like Scream 4 was Four. like, you know, being championed. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm waiting for curtains to sort of have that moment. Um, um, I, I think there's a groundswell for it. I'll see it mentioned a couple times in threads here and there. Um, I know that Synapse put out uh, a Blu-ray that had uh, a, a brand new 2K um, restoration on it. I don't know how mm. long ago. And um, it, it was something that we were going to try to find a way to show at Terror Tuesday sometime later in the year. Because for the last six months, we've had at least two to three people each week put it in. Um, so okay. it was something that we were gearing up that, that, you know, trying to see if it was a rights thing or, or whatever it was, or if it was expensive, I can't remember because my spreadsheet isn't easily accessible right now. Um, but it, <laughs> it was something that we were noticing enough people were, were mentioning that it was something that we were trying to find a way to, to bring. And if in Kansas city, you know, there's enough of a contingent that they're starting to continually put it on list, then. You know, that, then I think it's something that people should look at. And, and you see it on lots of lists for for uh, uh, slasher films that don't, you know, get enough attention or talked enough about. So I, I feel like we're on uh, the cusp. It shows that it was 1983. Um, mm-hmm. So I've got a feeling that, you know, again, as we come to that big milestone uh, anniversary for it, that I think people will start doing that, that you'll have somebody big in the next three years on Twitter will mention it in, in the horror community. And then that'll start kind of a snowball of people wanting to check it out. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, yeah, I, I have that, that synapse, uh, Blu-ray and it's, it is gorgeous. Um, you know, I mean, now that we're, you know, theaters are closed, it sort of, you know, hurts because a lot of retrospective theaters out there aren't able to show movies like this. I mean, I know, uh, you know, with the 40th anniversary of Friday the 13th coming up, I know that definitely would have, you know, had some, screen time um but you know i i don't think personally that we'll be you know opening up theaters or at least crowding them uh come july that's just my sort of maybe realist slash pessimistic viewpoint but uh (laughs) you know if you know i i do hope that maybe i don't i I mean i don't know where it's streaming right now but if anyone you know has yeah uh curtains is on both tubi and voodoo Okay, so you get your commercials, but uh, I know that both of them do it uncensored. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, those are great free ways to watch one of probably my top ten slashers. And what's the third film? The third film is – I'm going to throw it out there because I just recently watched it, and I think that it's a movie that doesn't like ever get talked about. And I think that if it does, it's, you know, regarded as lesser Hooper, um, but it's Toby Hooper's spontaneous combustion. Uh, um, Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif. Um, I knew of this movie just because of the poster and um, which is also on the Blu-ray. Um, I know Code Red did one that's sort of a little bit more pricey, but there is one that's for a decent price. But uh, the poster is like gorgeous. It's like, you know, smoke is just coming out of his eyes and like his coat and a lot of great blues but this movie um it's starts out in you know they're like the 50s they're testing this a-bomb on this couple and they like you know giving them i guess radioactive like defendant in their blood or something and it's it i think it opens with like an ink spot song and it just it has this really great aesthetic and this really great feel and then you skip to uh the future which you know i think would be 1990 at that point and 
it just has really great compositions and like its use of color is really like excellent. And the special effects, um, you know, it's sort of following um, similarly to Poltergeist, uh, a lot of flames shooting out, um, you know, flame hands sort of like ghosting from people. But like, and I don't know, you, you have a movie where John Landis catches fire and I don't care for the guy. So watching him burn, I was like, this movie's awesome, you know? <laughs> But it's, you know, it, and it has, it has a, sorry, wow, that's my timer on my phone for doing something with bread. Um, it has a 2.9 on Letterboxd, and I'm just like, you know, it's undeserved. Like, this movie's really kind of beautiful. And Brad Dorff, you know, again, I think he's probably doing some of his best work um, next to Exorcist 3 and Deadwood, you know. That's, that's high praise right there. Now, we'll, we'll wrap it up quickly since you had the timer go off with bread. And very important. <laughs> Um, uh, this one's not, uh, screen, like it doesn't show that it's on streaming anywhere whatsoever. It does show that there is a, a Blu-ray of it, uh, from a company that I, I haven't heard of. And it says that the aspect ratio is one, three, three, one. So I don't quite know about that. Uh, but you can find it on, uh, Amazon. Let everybody know where they can find you online. Um, I'm not really on Instagram anymore, mostly Twitter. Um, it's Real Brew, R-E-E-L Brew. Um, so, I don't know, stupid, cheeky name I came up with when I was a barista like a decade ago. Um, but, yeah, my writing can be found at uh, Daily Grindhouse, Talk Film Society. Um, but, yeah, I'm usually, I mean, especially now with quarantine, I'm probably on Twitter more than I care to. But um, <laughs> You've got you know, good yeah. film suggestions out there, so I'll, I'll say that. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, so I think sometimes I think, you know, maybe a lot of people feel this. It's just, you know, the voices could go on deaf ear and a lot of times mine should. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do love the amount of people, uh, you know, you're, you're included in this that just I've met and I've gotten to know. And I feel like, you know, um, especially in these times of isolation, it's sort of really great to be able to, just, uh, you know, flip your screen on and have friends i guess at your fingertips which makes you guys sound very uh you know but you know it, it's, it's just it's really wonderful to have a community i think and you know um i wish more people that i knew on twitter lived near providence um <laughs> but yeah no it's it's, it's great i think all of these people come together to, with, with this shared love is you know a necessity around these times especially I completely agree with you. You can find me on Twitter at Yo Adrian Torres, and you can find the show at Horrorversary. Very simple, very easy. Um, we've got lots of content that we're putting out. I'm suggesting to everybody, just because I was glad to to figure out technology for once, uh, the second episode of the show was originally supposed to be uh, Scott Drevitt from Daily Dead talking about magic. Uh, the audio got extremely messed up and was basically unusable so I couldn't put it out, but had been fiddling with it for the last basically week and was finally able to get it to a fully listenable um, state. There's a couple little um, background sounds here and there, but it's it's back up. So I ended up putting it out there two years late, but it, it's out there. So definitely give that um, a listen to uh, Greg. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no, no, thank you. That was, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm sorry for running over. So, you guys, I know this one was a little bit longer, but I think it's it's definitely worth your time. So yeah, until... I apologize, everybody. Oh, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. <laughs> save, save the apologizing for Hellraiser. So. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm bountiful. <laughs> um, 
until next time, everybody, especially with the state of the world, make sure to stay safe and just be nice to each other.